Hello everyone and welcome to the second season of the History of Modern Greece, where we cover the subject of the fall of Constantinople to the modern day. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George. Hi, my name's George. And our music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is episode 56, the Viking origins story, Sviatoslav. This is the very last episode of the Viking origin story. We promise. By the end of this episode, we will tie this story back into the main Greek narrative. Do you remember where we left the main Greek narrative? Or has it been that long? When we left the last episode, the Slavs of Eastern Europe adopted the Swedish warrior Rurik as their king. The Swedish Vikings and their Slavic army were on the doorstep of the Eastern Roman Empire. In 879 CE, Rurik died and handed power over to his trusted ally and friend, Oleg, until his son came of age. Oleg basically became the regent and took Rurik's young son under his wing. While the young heir was still a child, Oleg brought him with his army down to Kiev. And when Oleg and his army landed in Kiev, he told the pretenders who had taken the city that they were not princes, they did not come from the kin of Rurik. He pointed to the young Igor and said, This is Igor, son of Rurik, he is a prince. Olog didn't even let the pretenders of Kiev answer, and instead had them cut down on the banks of the Dnieper River. From this point, Oleg united the entire lands from the Black Sea all the way up to Ladoga in the north. It became one of the biggest kingdoms in Europe and controlled the superhighway of trade from the Baltics to the Black Sea, or from the Greeks to the Scandinavians. What came next were years of conquest. Oleg went from Slavic tribe to Slavic tribe that refused to pay tribute to the Rus. The first tribe he encountered fought valiantly, but were slaughtered in battle, forcing them to pay an annual tribute. Afterwards, Oleg went to the other tribes that refused to pay, and after hearing what happened to their neighbors, they threw their weapons aside and quickly agreed to join the Rus. The conquest was the same everywhere. Oleg brought his armies up every small river to every settlement, bringing them each to heel and uniting a large part of Eastern Europe. If you want a comparison, you could argue the events with Oleg were similar to that of the Franks in the West, one Germanic tribe conquering all of their neighbors until they were united in a single force. And as his territory grew, Oleg was forced to build large fortresses along the various rivers of Eastern Europe, and then garrisoned them with Varangians. Now, Varangians were another name for the Vikings who came from the north. And with every fortress erected, small towns started popping up around them, as the Varangians were likely to keep the peace in those settlements. And as Oleg became more and more powerful, he dreamt of taking Tsargrad, or Constantinople, for himself. If he was able to take all the territory around him, why couldn't he take the great city to the south? So Oleg organized a large army and a fleet and set sail down the river, leaving the now adult Igor in Kiev. 
In 907 CE, the massive fleet sailed down the Dnieper River and were dragged over land where the rivers were rough until they entered the Black Sea. Surprisingly, they made it through the Black Sea and approached the Golden City completely unchallenged. Everything was looking great for Oleg. As the Viking ships sailed through the Bosphorus, they saw the city with their own eyes. The Hagia Sophia could be seen towering over thousands of buildings protected behind seawalls. The city looked ripe for the taking, like a low-hanging fruit. As Oleg and his fleet sailed for the city, something snagged the ships. Boats were torn apart as the hulls came crashing into something floating just below the surface of the water. Hundreds of men fell overboard, and several ships sunk to the bottom of the sea, dragging with it any men who were wearing metal armor. To their surprise, a great chain was stretched across the water, preventing any ship from sailing up to the harbor. Oleg ordered his fleet to break off and beach their vessels. The order was given to sack and raid the suburbs of the city, massacring thousands of Greek civilians living outside of the city walls. Many Greek people died that night, and their churches and homes burnt to the ground. The devastation was enough for the emperor to submit and pay the Rus a tribute to leave Constantinople and the people in peace. After speaking with the emperor, either directly or indirectly, Oleg managed to negotiate a tribute and secure a trade deal that was better than any other pagan entity had gotten before. It was a tax-free trade deal that legitimized the new state to the north, the first Kievan Rus state. The emperor was impressed with the brutality and strength of the Rus and hired several members to swear their allegiance to him and act as his personal bodyguard. This gave birth to the Varangian Guard, a Norse group of pagan warriors who dedicated their service to protecting the living emperor of Constantinople. Although Oleg did not return to Kiev a war hero, he did return a hero, for he opened the floodgates of trade between their two kingdoms, bringing immense wealth to the Kievan Rus. He doubled the size of the kingdom left to him by Rerik. In 912 CE, Oleg died, and he left the kingdom to the rightful heir, Igor, son of Rurik. Having grown up in court, he knew exactly how the realm functioned and how to govern effectively and justly. Unfortunately, a lot of tribes that were forced to pay tribute under Oleg thought this was their time to get out, and immediately Igor had to prove his might. The first tribe to rebel was brutally subjugated by Igor's warriors, and an even stricter tax was imposed upon them to discourage any other tribe from trying the same thing. This method seemed to work because Igor managed to hold on to the kingdom bestowed upon him. Now the trouble with pacifying the region so quickly is that there were very few, if any, military campaigns to go on. And this meant his soldiers were growing restless. In 939 CE, 27 years after taking the throne, the Byzantine ambassadors arrived in Kiev. They came to negotiate an agreement 
to help fight off the Khazars that were growing stronger every year. The Greeks offered gifts in order to persuade them to help. And Igor thought this was the perfect opportunity to grow his kingdom as well as satisfy his soldiers' thirst for blood. So he launched a campaign against the Khazars, but was brutally defeated. With a battlefield full of dead Rus, the Khazars met with Igor and demanded him to join in a war against the Byzantines or face total annihilation. Now, having no choice, Igor agreed to fight the Khazars against the Byzantines and spent the next two years preparing for the campaign. A large fleet was assembled and sailed down the river, while the cavalry units marched along the shores. This was a full-scale invasion with the intent of taking Constantinople for themselves. The scouts in the area reported the Greeks were busy fighting a war with the Arabs, and now was the time to attack. Igor's massive fleet sailed across the Black Sea unchallenged and entered the Bosphorus. And to their surprise, only 15 vessels came out to meet them. This was going to be a cakewalk. The Rus ships encircled the Byzantines, preparing to move in for the kill. But before they could get close enough, something terrible happened. The Greek ships spewed liquid fire across the gap, landing on the vessels and burning everyone inside alive before catching the boat and the water around them on fire. Within minutes, dozens of vessels were alight, with sailors screaming and jumping over the side, only to sink straight to the bottom of the sea. The waters turned into a literal hell, as every ship caught fire and the fleet broke up. The sailors scrambled, and to give you an idea of how devastating the Greek fire was, it could be sprayed up to 30 meters. I think that's 90 feet. Over 90 feet. Over 90 feet. The ruse did not stand a chance. Igor suffered a humiliating defeat and retreated with the survivors back up the river. Many more soldiers died of dysentery on the journey home, and when Igor made it back to Kiev, he was without any loot and without any army. The one thing he did return with was an abundance of shame. But this did not stop Igor from trying again. Over the next year, he made alliances with the Pechenegs, another steppe tribe, and, stale, and sailed down to Constantinople one more time. Only this time, his army was so great that the Byzantines offered to set up a new trade agreement, similar to that of Oleg before. And when Igor returned, he proclaimed himself a victor without having to fight a single battle. Now this is very odd, considering he already had a great trade agreement before his first attempt at conquering Constantinople. When Igor returned to Kiev, he spent the year in relative peace. His beautiful wife gave birth to his son, who he named Sviatoslav, meaning holy or glory. But this was also the first time a Rus prince was given a native Slavic name. In 945 CE, while Sviatoslav was only a child, his father was out on an expedition, collecting tribute from the Slavic tribes. When one group felt they were being taxed unfairly and fought off the soldiers, 
and captured Igor. He was tortured before two trees were pulled down to the ground, and Igor's legs were tied to both of them. The men then released the two trees which flung back up, tearing Igor in half. This cruel execution left Sviatoslav in control of the kingdom, and his mother Olga as the regent. Olga is an important woman in Russian history, as she was in charge of protecting her son while he was vulnerable. The tribe that was responsible for killing her husband came to her personally to pass on a message. Our tribe has executed your husband for pillaging our lands, and now our prince shall you marry him. The news of learning her husband was horribly executed and that his murderer was now trying to marry her was too much to deal with at once. Her blood was boiling with rage, but she kept her calm as she responded to the men in her court. She responded to the emissaries with carefully chosen words. Your proposal is pleasing to me indeed. My husband cannot rise again from the dead, but I desire to honor you tomorrow in the presence of my people. Return now to your boat and remain there with an aspect of arrogance. I shall send for you on the morrow, and you shall say, We will not ride on horses nor go on foot. Carry us in our boat, and you shall be carried in your boat. When the emissaries returned the next day, they waited outside Olga's court to receive the honor she had promised. When they repeated the words she had told them to say, the people of Kiev rose up, carrying the emissaries in their boat. The ambassadors believed this was a great honor, as if they were being carried into a room by servants. The emissaries looked out at the people of Kiev and might have even smiled and waved, or maybe they sat proper with their noses raised in the air. The people carried their boat to the middle of the court, and before they knew anything was wrong, the boat was flipped over, tossing the boat and everyone in it to the bottom of a fresh pit that was dug the night before. The emissaries crawled out from under the wreckage, many with shattered bones. Their cries for help were dulled by the dirt being tossed onto them from the surface. It is written that Olga bent down to watch them as they were buried alive and inquired whether they found the honor to their taste. This was a declaration of war, and she knew she had to act fast, while she still had the element of surprise. So she sent her men to the prince who murdered her husband, agreeing to his marriage proposal. The only stipulation she put in her agreement was for an envoy to come to her city and give her a proper escort to his city. Because everything seemed normal, the prince agreed and sent a large detachment to escort Lady Olga down to marry the prince. The elite warriors arrived in Kiev, and again Olga welcomed them into her city. She was friendly and acted excited to see them, and even told them to relax and enjoy the splendors of Kiev. She told them the bathhouses were heated and they could spend the evening enjoying a nice soak in hot water. Back in the day, soaking in a hot tub was something only the super elite could afford. 
the soldiers went into the bathhouse, and as they dipped into the nice hot water, the doors were closed and barred. Before the elite warriors even knew something was wrong, the men outside set the building on fire from all four corners, engulfing the entire structure in a hot blaze that burned and boiled the men within. Olga went with her soldiers to the city where her husband was killed. And because everyone there was expecting her for the marriage, they never thought anything was wrong. She even told the guards to wait out because her escort was not far behind her. When she entered the city, the prince threw a grand feast to celebrate the new marriage, and all the men ate and drank until it was late, and everyone was drunk. Once everyone had just the right amount to drink and their guard was down, Olga's men pulled out their swords and massacred everyone at the feast. Over 5,000 men were slaughtered that night, and Olga returned home with her men. But it wasn't long after that she returned with her entire army. When she reached the capital of the province that was rebelling, her army, although superior, was still at a disadvantage. The city walls were great, and they could hold out against a siege for a long time. But Olga wasn't there to throw her men's lives away for a wasteful attack. She decided to negotiate with the leaders of the city. All she wanted was a form of tribute. Nothing that would overburden the city, like her husband was murdered for. She only asked for an offering of two to three pigeons per household. If they gave her what she asked, she would leave the city in peace. This was a no-brainer. The people inside did not want war, and although they really needed those pigeons, they needed the siege much, much less. Once the birds were collected from each household and sent out to Olga, she thanked the city for the tribute and laid out all of the pigeons to make sure she had enough. The pigeons were laid out and her soldiers tied tiny sulfur-soaked cloth to their legs. When the night fell, the cloth was lit, and the birds released. Panicking because their legs burned with fire, the pigeons flew through the night and returned to their houses, where the burning feathers set the roofs on fire. One by one, the pigeons were lit, and they returned to the house they were collected from. And over the next few hours, every house within the capital caught fire and burned to the ground. The screams of the people inside grew louder as the flames burned hotter. And just like that, Olga rid herself of the people who murdered her husband and sent a message to all the other tribes. Don't even try to mess with her, or she will raise your city to the ground. Olga knew she couldn't rule a kingdom based on fear alone without more tribes wanting to break apart. She also knew that the reason for the tribe's betrayal lay in the unregulated tribute system. So she dedicated her time and power to break up the kingdom into proper provinces while organizing a more regulated and fair, transparent tax system. This way, no tribe would feel cheated again and want to rebel. There was another issue with her massive kingdom that was a ticking time bomb. The people were not united. There were Finns, Slavs, and Rus, and many other people that did not share a common culture. 
At the first sign of weakness, the kingdom could dissolve into many smaller parts. She needed a way to unite her people, and she looked at the Byzantine Empire as inspiration. She traveled to Constantinople personally to meet with the emperor and his court. At first, they didn't know how to respond, but in the end, they threw a massive feast to honor her presence. In Emperor Constantine's court, she was greeted by mechanical animals that moved and roared and were meant to dazzle anyone from the barbaric plains. For the next 40 days, she stayed in Constantinople and got to enjoy its wealth and art and shrines. She saw things that she never could have imagined existed. This truly was the greatest city in the world. While she waited in Constantine's court, she befriended the patriarch who spoke to her for many days. And it was here, talking to the patriarch, that she realized what it was holding this great empire together. It was a shared faith. Christianity was the glue that held the many different cultures together. Olga was baptized in Constantinople, and afterward, her life changed. After speaking with Emperor Constantine about her new life, she finally departed for her homeland in Kiev, and everything changed forever. She knew how to unite her empire. She also had a taste of the riches and prestige of Constantinople. Her capital city was so minuscule compared to the great city. When she came back home, she knew she had to convince her kingdom to convert to Christianity. So she started with her son, Sviatoslav. But he was not so keen to give up the traditional pagan way of life. He was raised by soldiers, and the soldiers were fixed in their pagan ways. To him, the Christian faith was a shameful thing to take on and showed weakness. Sviatoslav ignored the pleas of his mother and remained committed to his pagan beliefs. As Sviatoslav came of age and Olga faded into the background, the Greek merchants who traded were respected in honor of his mother's Christian beliefs, but his patience was wearing thin. Sviatoslav was a true Viking, genetically. Both of his parents were Viking, but his name was Slav. He worshipped the Slavic gods and dressed and spoke like the Slavs. This is another example of the leaders being assimilated into the culture that they ruled over. He was a tough leader who lived a hard life in the wild. He had no desire to travel with wagons and sleep in tents and buildings. He lived off the land and slept on the land. And now that he was in charge of the Kievan Rus, Sviatoslav began launching raids into the land outside of his territory. His targets were set on the large cognate of Jewish Turks to his east, the Khazars. Sviatoslav moved slowly across the land, focusing on each village, pillaging and subjugating them, forcing them to denounce the Khazars and swear allegiance to the Rus. And as he ventured further and further into the steppe, the ground grew flatter and his ground troops became more vulnerable to the Khazar's cavalry. But Sviatoslav wasn't going to let that stop him. 
You see, there were plenty of other Turkic tribes for hire that were not loyal to the Jewish Khazars. And when the Khazars circled around Sviatoslav, they were met by another army of horse archers. So basically, he's fighting fire with fire. With the ability to control the waterways and the foot soldiers to take the villages and the hired mercenaries to act as their cavalry, there was no stopping Sviatoslav. His army moved across the land, conquering the villages one at a time until he took all of the land between the Dnieper and Volga River. In 969 CE, Sviatoslav rode up to the capital of the Khazar Cagnate, Attil, on the banks of the Caspian Sea, and razed the city to the ground. The fiery inferno burned every building. The rust killed or enslaved the people, and the final death blow was dealt to the Khazars. There might have been a few of them running around, but they were like chickens without a head. Sooner or later, they were going to drop. Sviatoslav did not stop with the Khazars, as now he came right up to the borders of the Volga-Bulgar Khanate. These were the distant cousins of the Bulgars, who were separated when the Khazars first rolled in on the scene. It is at this point in history that the Volga-Bulgars were expunged from history either being massacred or assimilated into the ever-expanding Kievan Rus' empire. The Khazars were wiped out, and you a new powerful kingdom of Kievan Rus' ruled over the land north of the Black Sea and Caspian Sea, and stretched right up to the Baltics. They were now the third largest player on the scene, beside the Abbasid Caliphate and Byzantine Empire. It wasn't long after his conquests that a messenger from Constantinople arrived in Kiev with an offer to Sviatoslav. Thousands of pounds of riches in exchange for a joint operation against the Bulgars. The Romans were known for this. Time and time again they reached out to the tribes living beyond their borders and made them fight each other. This kept their neighbors occupied on their furthest border. This was the one way the Romans destabilized their neighbors before ultimately annexing them. If Sviatoslav had the historical knowledge of the Roman Empire, he might have seen the benefit of keeping a buffer state between himself and Rome. But he didn't have that knowledge, and he really wanted the gold. Sviatoslav mustered an army of over 60,000 men consisting of Varangians, as the Vikings, Slavs, Finns, and Pechenegs, this multinational army descended from the plains of the Pontic Steppe and invaded Bulgaria. Using the same tactics of his, of his Viking kinsmen, Sviatoslav invaded with everything he had as fast and as hard as he could. It was a blitzkrieg attack on a Bulgar state that was not prepared for an invasion. It came fast and was over quickly. The entire northern half of Bulgaria fell to the Kievan Rus. The speed at which Sviatoslav conquered Bulgaria frightened Emperor John Tsimiskis. With Bulgaria crumbling before his very eyes, the scope of the Kievan Rus became clear. Now there was nothing between him and them. 
And the Kievan Rus were proving to be a very powerful enemy. I'm sure there was a moment where Emperor Simiskis regretted making that deal with Sviatoslav. Now with Emperor Simiskis running out of ideas, he did the same thing the Romans had done forever. Find an enemy that lived beyond your enemy and pay them to attack the Kievan Rus from behind. I mean, it worked only a few days earlier with the Bulgarians. Why not try it again? So a large amount of gold was offered to Pecheneg mercenaries. Now, these are Turkic horse riders to ride on Kiev and sack the city. This would take Sviatoslav's eyes away from Constantinople and focus far up north. Now, Olga was an old woman by this time, and she was living in Kiev. But that did not stop her from gathering an army and holding off the attacking Pechenegs until her son was able to come to her rescue. And thanks to the old woman, the city of Kiev held out long enough to be saved by reinforcements. Unfortunately, not long after the Pechenegs were chased off the land, Olga fell ill. And not long after, she died. Sviatoslav honored his mother's wishes and had her buried according to Christian customs instead of being burned like the Viking tradition. She was one of the first Rus to convert to Christianity, but she would not be the last, and eventually she would become a saint. With his mother dead and the homeland safe from invaders, Sviatoslav returned his attention to the south. Only now he was angry. Not only was he paid to invade Bulgaria, but once he did what he was paid to do, the Romans sent assassins to destroy his home. He was angry and betrayed and not willing to settle this time. And to make matters worse, a messenger from Constantinople arrived and had the audacity to tell the Kievan Rus to pack up and leave Bulgaria. Thank you, but you can go now. Sviatoslav wasn't going anywhere. The Romans invited him, and he was here to stay. Sviatoslav had heard just about enough from these Romans. In 970 CE, Sviatoslav launched an invasion into the Roman Empire, and with his coalition of troops attacked the famous city of Adrianople. The battle was bloody, but there was just no way Sviatoslav's men could take the city walls. As more Roman reinforcements arrived from Constantinople, they were ultimately forced to retreat and ran back into Bulgaria to a city called Dorostolin. The Rus reinforced the city and they made preparations for the Roman counteroffensive. They had scouts watching the hills and knew the Roman army was marching their way. They only had days to prepare. When the Romans made it to Dorostolin, they besieged the city for 65 days. There was nowhere for the Rus to go. The Roman soldiers surrounded the city. They dug trenches and made forts while the river was blocked by Byzantine ships, all equipped with Greek fire. This felt like the end for Sviatoslav. But still, he held out. On July 24, 971, Sviatoslav's luck appeared to be turning around. 
it looked like the Romans were breaking off a siege. Their will and spirit had broken, and now they were giving up and going home. Watching from the walls, Vyatoslav saw the Romans pick up their weapons and shields and slowly walk away from their trenches, their backs facing the Rus. Now was his time to take the initiative and attack with everything he had. His men were berserkers, used to charging to battle with a blitzkrieg fashion, and now was their moment. The gates were opened, and the Slavic Norse soldiers charged out of the gates and chased down the retreating Romans. Sviatoslav must have been surprised when the Romans turned around in unison and formed up a defensive wall. Finally, Sviatoslav saw the trap his men had just walked into. There was no time to organize. His men ran straight into the Roman wall of iron and were cut down one by one on the battlefield. The survivors turned to run back into the city, but most were cut down. At this moment, Sviatoslav stood in the city, no food, no provisions, and his best men were dead. And still the Romans held the ground and water. There was nothing left to do, nowhere left to go, except to send a message to the Romans and surrender. Sviatoslav surrendered to Emperor John Semiskis, and the two met face to face on the opposite side of the river. In many cases throughout history, the leader would be humiliated in front of the enemy's soldiers before being beheaded. Sviatoslav knew he was taking a risk by paddling across the river to meet the emperor. To his surprise, the Romans treated him with respect. John Semiskis was a soldier himself and congratulated Sviatoslav for putting up such a good fight. After talking with each other, they both agreed to release 100% of their prisoners. The Rus were to leave Bulgaria and never cross into this land again, while at the same time they were to abandon their claims in the Crimea. Sviatoslav was truly moved by the treatment of the Roman Emperor. They even agreed to return to the old trade agreement. Sviatoslav was humbled and happy to leave with his life. But his men did not feel the same. In their eyes, Sviatoslav was a loser who betrayed everyone to the Greeks. There was muttering and complaining among the survivors who sailed back up the Black Sea to the Dnieper River. Along the way, they suffered from famine and exposure, and many more men died, making Sviatoslav a very unpopular leader. Soon people were cursing his name and plotting against him. Now there's one point in the Dnieper River which is impossible to traverse by boat, and while the men dragged their ships over land, a band of Pecheneg warriors ambushed the Rus and killed all of the soldiers. They captured Sviatoslav and dragged him off to the field where he was shot full of arrows. Sviatoslav was dead, and according to steppe tradition, his head was chopped off with an axe. The Pechenegs then boiled his head in a pot until all of the meat fell off, leaving a white skull, which was cracked and molded with silver and turned into a drinking cup. Now, Just in case you're wondering, this is the second time in season two a leader was turned into a drinking cup, and we can assure you it will happen again. Now this concludes our Viking origin story miniseries. It was meant to be a single episode, and looks like it's now at least five. 
For those listening every time a new episode comes out, it will seem like two months to you. And we can assure you, we will get back to the Greek main narrative. Well, we still have two more origin stories to tell. And that's the one involving the Holy Roman Empire and that of the Fatimid Caliphate. Now, I'm sure some of you are wondering what happens next to the Kievan Rus, and you want to know more. And I assure you, we will mention them again as they're a major player in the world stage. But when we return to the Greek main story, we will be returning to Basil II, the longest-lasting Roman emperor in its entire history. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the History of Modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome.